Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to Pots podcast. Hello, mast cell patients and lovely people who care about mast cell patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and this is our monthly episode of Mast Cell Matters, where we go deep on all things related to mast cell activation syndrome, aka MCAS, with the help of our wonderful guest host, Dr. Tanya Dempsey, who is a foremost expert on MCAS and all-around physician and researcher extraordinaire. Dr. Dempsey, thank you so much for hosting. Who is our guest today? Oh, I'm so happy to introduce Dr. Janet Settle. Dr. Settle is an incredible integrative psychiatrist. She has amazing training. She attended Northwestern University where she completed her BS in biomedical engineering and her MD. During training, she did research. And after medical school, she completed an internship in medicine and then residency training in psychiatry at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver, Colorado. She has spent the last 20 years plus studying and implementing medical treatments that have been referred to as integrative alternative. And she, she really was one of the first cohorts of physicians board certified by the American Board of Holistic Medicine in 2000. And she completed a fellowship in anti-aging, regenerative, and functional medicine in 2009. In 2016, she was board certified by the newly formed American Board of Integrative Medicine. She applies the practice of functional medicine to her integrative psychiatric practice by diagnosing and treating the underlying causes of chronic medical and mental health symptoms. Welcome, Dr. Settle. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tanya. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I'd love to just dive right in, right? As a psychiatrist, and we're talking about math, cell issues. So as a psychiatrist, how is MCAS relevant to your work? It's extremely relevant to my work, and I definitely get better outcomes with people when I look for and treat mast cell-related symptoms. It's very underappreciated, as you know, by medicine in general and by psychiatry in particular. So I find that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit <laughs> to address yeah. mast cell issues with you know just a, a, a large proportion of patients who come to me. So in general, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what kind of symptoms would you be seeing? What kind of symptoms of MCAT do you see commonly in your practice? Well, it might be an overly simplistic rule of thumb, but just like looking at physical symptoms of MCAS, I look for mainly episodic mental health symptoms. So that those are extremely common in psychiatry. Mood swings, panic attacks, brain fog, especially people say, I have good days, I have bad days, I have good mood days, bad mood days, I have good cognition days, bad cognition days. The cognitive symptoms can include things like memory and concentration. Obsessive anxiety is a big one where people get rumination or they, you know, get those thought worms that they can't get out of their heads or kind of people find they get stuck on certain things. And along with the mood swings and the panic attacks come episodes of suicidal ideation. 
I don't have so many people in my practice who struggle with psychosis, but I, I would add psychosis to that list as well, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, psychosis is a combination of delusions, that's fixed false beliefs, right, that can be fearful, that's a paranoid delusion, or grandiose, that's an inflated self-esteem delusion, but that those kind of delusions combined with hallucinations or losing the logical flow of your thought pattern make up psychosis. So I believe that's also a related symptom, but it's not something that I treat on a daily basis. Mostly I'm treating mood swings, panic attacks, brain fog, episodes of suicidal ideation, and cognitive symptoms, obsessive anxiety. How would you explain how how NAS shells are involved in the development of those symptoms? What is your way of, of putting it together? It's so complex, and I would say we're very early in understanding this. As I said, there's next to no recognition or appreciation for the role of histamine and mast cell activation in psychiatry. Although we use medications, and a lot of the standard medications that we use do influence mast cells and histamine-producing neurons. So I think we're doing it sort of without knowing that we're doing it. But our earliest capacity to measure and track messenger substances in the brain started with other neurotransmitters like acetylcholine, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. And uh, our ability to stain the brain cells for histamine came at least 20 years later than the others. So we're at least that far behind in understanding histamine in the brain. When that knowledge gap closes, I do expect that there'll be a lot more focus and appreciation for the role of histamine in mental health and cognitive symptoms. For example... Just this year, in 2023, there was a publication that mapped out all the histamine, the neuronal histamine projections in the brain, in the mouse brain. So that's that's much later than, you know, we have projection maps for lots of other different neurotransmitters in the mouse brain and in the human brain for things like serotonin and norepinephrine. So just to say that we're behind... And that's because the staining of histamine-containing neurons is more difficult and that there are some new methods that are speeding that up. And so it's kind of a non-answer to your question that I think we, we don't really know. But I will say, just like mast cells live in the boundaries of all the other different organ systems in the body, the lining of the gut, the lining of the bladder, the skin, the lining of the sinuses and the lungs. Also, mast cells exist at the blood-brain barrier. And so the mast cells, just like in other parts of the body, they're the sentry cells that send the alert signal when there's some kind of danger that's perceived, and then they flood the area with histamine and the hundreds of other signaling molecules that come from mast cells. And there are mast cells throughout the brain tissue that are responding to threats and using these signaling molecules. Also, there's a whole array of histamine-producing neurons that start in the hypothalamus, which is a specialized brain region that has to do with a bunch of things, but also it has to do with fear responses 
and has to do with kind of defeat behaviors, which I think of fear responses as being related to anxiety and those defeat behaviors as being related to depression or, or you know, mood swings and suicidal ideation. So there are the mast cells and then there are these histamine-producing neurons, which interestingly, they don't release the histamine at the uh, synapses like a more typical neurotransmitter, but f uh, at different ports along the length of the neuronal axon, which is just sort of an interesting factoid. So there's a convergence of information on the hypothalamus uh, having to do with light and smell and autonomic inputs, you know, that has to do with heart rate and blood pressure and all those POTS kind of symptoms and feeding all of those hormones that, that ghrelin and insulin and leptin and, you know, all those things about hunger and satiety and stress. And so this area of the hypothalamus where all of this is happening in ways that we do not yet understand, I think is intricately associated with histamine. So it's going to be an exciting, you know, some exciting decades to come. Fascinating. You know, I was going to go in a slightly different direction, but now that you've piqued my interest with the hypothalamus, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, other parts of the brain. So in the MCAS world, you know, a lot of people have tried or are trying these various programs like limbic retraining mm -hmm. and brain retraining. And how mm -hmm. does that fit in to what you're talking about in, in terms of the hypothalamus and other parts of the brain? I'm curious about that connection and the connection to the math cells. It absolutely fits in. Yes. Those programs like the Gupta program and like the Correct. dynamic neural retraining system, I think of it as an alternative to using medications to control your physiology. It's you're using your brain, your, your thoughts, your emotional training system to control your physiology. We all need help with emotional regulation. That's with and without mast cell activation. But especially for people who are very physiologically sensitive, those kinds of emotional soothing, self-soothing skills. The point is that learning those skills changes your biology. It changes your biochemistry and it changes the brain in ways that I don't know if we've had enough time yet to determine exactly we can see the end effect of those changes, but I don't know that we've gotten in there and dissected the brains and stained the neurons to see like, oh, well, you just changed your histamine neurons in this way or that way. But yes, I'm a huge uh, proponent for those kinds of systems. And for the most sensitive people, since you brought that up, I really like this mindful self-compassion. You can Google that I have had some people who are even too sensitive for Gupta program and get triggered by the exercises. And I find this mindful self-compassion is almost, you know, it's like even a step more gentle and foundational to work up to, you know, Gupta program and DNA. Oh, that's a great, great tip. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, so kind of thinking about then the patients in your practice, that have some of the symptoms that you mentioned, what is your approach? Do you test them for MCAS? Do you make certain assumptions? How, how would you approach a patient who has some of the MCAS symptoms, but obviously is, is having that, that interplay between MCAS and, and the psychiatric manifestations? What's your sort of like first line approach? And maybe it is partially limbic retraining or <laughs> those types of things yeah. as well, right? 
Well, first, I'm looking for the pattern on exam, on interview. I mean, in my practice, it's primarily a clinical diagnosis, right? I do test the blood of the urine for metabolites, for histamine, and for other metabolites, like I'm sure other guests that you're interviewing would say the same thing, and we all are on the same page about that. And if I can find, you know, laboratory evidence to support the diagnosis of mast cell activation, that's just like icing on the cake. That's a bonus, right? And it helps everyone. It helps the patient. It helps the family members. It helps the other doctors on the team. It helps everyone. But a large proportion of the time, that's not the way this goes. It's primarily a clinical diagnosis in my practice. That's partly because LabCorp, which is the local lab that I rely on in Denver to test people, They've closed down so many of their locations. We have only two locations left in the city of Denver, which is <laughs> kind of astounding. And they, yeah. I think they have a hard time keeping people. They have a lot of turnover. All of my efforts and all of Jill Schofield's efforts to try to talk to the people there, you know, the boots on the ground there about how to process the samples have just basically failed. So I don't have the capacity. I don't have people in my office, you know, drawing blood so I can tell them right. exactly how to do it. So, so anyway, that's a long story short to say it's primarily a clinical diagnosis in my practice. I'm looking for a pattern. I'm looking for a pattern of the symptoms that I mentioned earlier. And then most often, I would say those symptoms co-occur with symptoms that are skin symptoms, you know, like itching and hives or migraines or asthma or, you know, gastrointestinal IBS type symptoms. Bladder symptoms are extremely common because I see a lot of women and, and see women for hormones too through different, you know, stages of the female life cycle. And so there are a lot of bladder symptoms, body pain. So it's more like mapping a constellation, you know, where I get all these different points. And then from that point, really, it's a trial and error where the testing out the treatments is part of how we confirm the diagnosis of mast cell activation. So we'll do the procedure like Larry advocates, Larry Afrin, our fearless leader. When people are able, let's try two weeks of you know, an H1 blocker, let's try two weeks of an H2 blocker, let's try all the other things that are on the list. Sometimes we don't have the luxury of all those two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, you know, and it's just like, okay, here are the four things we need to start today, you know, (laughs) and I know that people might have excipient reactions, and I know that that can be complicated, but sometimes people really need to just get out of the ditch, and so I would say that I try to collaborate with the patient and give them lots of education so that they can help me decide if it's a diagnosis that makes sense. So I try to educate them about the triggers and the flares and the waxing and waning symptoms. And, and you know, sometimes people come in and it's just a wall of white noise. You know, they have just symptoms, 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 right? And as we kind of like bring it down, then they can start to see, oh, tomatoes. Oh, you know, stress. Oh, I, you know, talk to this person who really pushes my buttons. Oh, I see a blip in my symptoms for two or three days. Or, oh, you know, I traveled and stayed in a moldy room on vacations. Oh, you know, and so 
I try to educate people that this is what we might be up against. It may not be clear right away, even if there's a small decrease in symptoms as we try these different things. Let's hang in there. And I mean, that has, I have to say, worked beautifully. And I have lots of people who rave about the benefits that they've gotten and how glad they are to know about this and how empowering it is to have the information, how much of a difference it makes to not just feel like you're at the effect, you know, being just buffeted around on the sea of histamine and all those, these other chemicals. So it's worked really well. It's worked really well for me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. So would you approach these patients with both psychiatric drugs at times and, and MCAS drugs at the same time? Are you in a position sometimes where you really have to get them from both ends? Is typically, that kind of what you're saying? Typically, yeah. Most often people don't come to me for the casual stuff, you know. Right. <laughs> By the time people have fought their way through the system to find their way to see a psychiatrist, usually it's kind of like, okay, we have some heavy lifting to do here at the beginning and we can sort this out and people are afraid oh if they get on their psychiatric medications they're going to be taking them forever it's not even that's not even partly true it's just a tool i would say i'm fairly pro psychiatric medications they're excellent tools i've taken a ton of training in holistic medicine looking for the way around psychiatric medications (laughs) and i'm sitting here to tell you i have not found it i believe that and that doesn't mean I don't help people get off. I do. Right. Right. But only when the time is right. If you're in the middle of, you know, a massive inflammatory state with mast cell activation and who knows what toxins, you know, mold toxins and other infections and things going on, that's not the time for you to say, oh, no, I'm only going to take St. John's word. I'm not going to take Prozac. That doesn't make sense to me, right? We we have these tools and they are gifts. These are gifts. I would also say that, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of the psychiatric medications that we use are either in whole or in part affecting inflammation and mast cells. Like, for example, Benadryl, right? What's the most common sleep medication used in the country? Benadryl. It's an antihistamine. Doxepin is great. Trazodone, you know, Trazodone is probably the most commonly prescribed. Benadryl is probably the most common over-the-counter sleep right. med. Trazodone is probably the most commonly psychiatrically prescribed sleep med. So people who take SSRIs or whatever when they can't sleep, trazodone is the number one thing a psychiatrist will reach for. Well, that's in part an antihistamine. And Seroquel is right. used for depression, antidepressant augmentations, used for sleep, it's not really much of an antipsychotic. I mean, it's typically, it's classified as an antipsychotic, but it's really not a very potent antipsychotic. It's mainly an antihistamine, especially at doses under 100 milligrams. So all those people walking around who are taking 25 or 12.5 milligrams of Seroquel, that's an antihistamine. Lamotrigine, I lean on that pretty heavily. That's anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective. It's good for mood swings, but I think it's it's working through an anti-inflammatory mechanism. And lithium, similarly, ancient, stigmatized, sadly stigmatized lithium. Yeah, Yeah, no, poor drug. It's a fantastic medication for immunomodulation. 
and it has been shown to inhibit histamine release from mast cells in rats. So, yes, you asked, do I use psychiatric medications? I do. Thank you for that, because I think I hear this a lot from my patients, always questioning, you know, concerned about having to take uh, those types of meds. They're worried about psychiatric meds that are not going to be, quote unquote, bad for their MCAS. And, and often, right, it's the opposite. If you can find the right drug, it could be actually very good for the MCAS. And so I loved your, your approach to that. Yes, yes, I agree completely. I try to encourage people, let's use all the tools that we can to help you feel as good as you can possibly feel. And then we'll back our way out. Then we'll pick and choose and we can back our way out of anything and everything. You know, nothing is permanent. I didn't mention fluvoxamine, one of my recent favorites. It's an antidepressant SSRI. Fluvoxamine is approved for obsessive compulsive disorder. And it's unique among SSRIs in that it's anti-inflammatory in a unique way. It works at the sigma-1 receptor. So it's been used, you know, a bunch of this has really been validated through the whole COVID and long COVID right. research, right? So I've been getting some mileage out of helping people change off their other SSRI, you know, their Prozac, Zoloft, Lexpro, over to uh, fluvoxamine and getting some good anti-neuroinflammatory results from that. So that's kind of fun. And there was something else. Oh, benzo. We should talk about yeah, benzo. Let's, yeah, let's talk about benzo. Thank yeah. you. Well, you never want to say 100%. <laughs> I would say 100% of the time. Wow. Wow. That's strong. Uh, when, okay. when people have the terrible, terrible, terrible trouble tapering off their benzodiazepines, yeah. it's mast cell activation syndrome. I agree. Just to define for the listeners, you know, benzodiazepine is the family of anti-anxiety meds that includes Valium, Ativan, which is lorazepam, Xanax, which is alprazolam. Those are the most common ones. Clonazepam, clonopin. Thank you. Clonazepam, clonopin. Most people who don't have mast cell activation can start and stop benzodiazepines pretty darn easily. And that's one of the reasons that I don't have too much trouble prescribing those for people, especially when I'm, well, either way, I mean, with or without mast cell activation, I don't have trouble prescribing them. But if someone does not have mast cell activation, I, I think, you know, you're going to be able to take this for three weeks while we're waiting for your Lexapro to work or whatever, you know, and then you'll taper off and it'll be fine. And by and large, most people don't want to take benzodiazepines and they work themselves off and it's fine and easy. But in the cases where it's not, and we've all seen those people, and I've seen a bunch of them, you know, people who can't come off or only with a lot of suffering and difficulty and teeth gnashing can try to come off, that's almost always mast cell activation. So my strategy in that situation is to try to help the mast cells, calm down the mast cells, and try to address whatever might be underlying the mast cell activation. And then people have a much easier time coming down on their benzos. I just saw a woman the other day who tapered her lorazepam. A lot of times people get started on their benzodiazepines, you know, 
innocently by the PCP who says, oh, yeah, it's not a problem, which in most cases it's not, you know, but this, mm-hmm. somehow, like in this case, you know, she had fairly quickly gotten up to two and a half milligrams a day, which is a pretty substantial dose of lorazepam at bedtime, and then spent literally years with a dropper bottle, you know, just inching her way down almost, you know, 1% at a time over the course of several years. And she just finished and she successfully came off. And I saw her the other day. I don't see her very often because she's very stable. She said, you know, the weirdest thing is happening lately. I've got this burning mouth syndrome. And I said, I think it's because you came off the lorazepam, right? I mean, that's a mast cell symptom that your lorazepam was treating but, you know, her dentist didn't say that, her whatever, all the other people she's consulting didn't say like, oh, this might be related to your mast cells and your lorazepam taper. So I think that's a real diagnostic flag for me. And and what is the reasoning for that? So the listeners uh, understand what's your theory as to why this is happening in MCAS patients? Because benzodiazepines calm mast cells, right? right. And people think, oh, the benzodiazepines are just working on anxiety. But I think the benzodiazepines are actually anti-inflammatory and they're calming the mast cells. And so when people have a panic attack, that's a mast cell flare and they take a benzodiazepine and it, yes, it calms the anxiety in the brain, but also it's calming the mast cells. So it's also treating the histamine. And we just don't know it yet. You know, we just don't know it yet. Well, we know it. You know, intuitively, anecdotally, we just need the research, right? We got to publish more. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I try to reassure people who have mast cell activation that the benzodiazepines are fine. This is not like they're falling down into some chasm of addiction or something, even if they're taking regular doses of benzodiazepines for some extended period of time because I say, well, we'll just work on the mast cell activation. And then when the time is right, you'll come down off the benzodiazepines because other things will be in place or the mast cells will be calmer and, you know, we'll get there. It's a process. But yeah, that's another thing that gets really stigmatized and people get freaked out about taking the benzos. Yeah. But they can work really well. Yes, I have a question, and I've been feeling a little stupid, but I figure that with thousands of listeners, someone else is going to have this question too. (laughs) But just for clarity, are you saying that you think there's a component of a lot of these psychiatric symptoms that is mast cell activation, like depression, anxiety, panic, brain fog? Like, What are we talking about specifically as far as psychiatric symptoms that could be partially accounted for by mast cells. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. I would say the top of the list for me is bipolar type 2. This thing, this beast we call bipolar type 2, right? This is mast cell activation, in my opinion. Can you explain a little bit about bipolar 2 while we're on that topic? So originally... Bipolar disorder, which is now called bipolar type 1, is a disorder where people have distinct episodes of manic and depressive moods. You really don't need the depressive part. Most people have the depressive part. And in fact, in bipolar disorder, depression is a much bigger problem than mania. And the manic episode is an extreme behavioral episode of 
driven, very active behavior, spending, reckless, irritable people are frequently out of touch with reality and either feel very anxious and agitated or feel very uh, euphoric. So, and mania is a very dangerous condition. What happened in the 80s and 90s is they started just expanding the definition of bipolar to include more and more people. And they did that by including mood episodes that are what they call hypomanic, which means mildly manic. So people have some symptoms of feeling driven, sleeping less, maybe needing less sleep, but maybe just less able to sleep, feeling agitated, feeling some racing thoughts, feeling some irritability, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some other things. But I think what I find is that this bipolar 2, this hypomania episodes are mast cell driven episodes. And especially when you see people who have what they call rapid cycling, you know, where you can have episodes that last a day or last a few days and then they go away. I think that's like someone who has hives for a few days and they go away. Or, you know, someone who has an IBS attack for a few days and it goes away. I believe that the bipolar 2 hypomanic episode is a mast cell driven event. So we were talking about which, you were asking Jill, which syndromes in particular are related to mast cell activation. Bipolar type 2 is the top of the list. People don't want to hear from me that technically, according to some book, some ill-informed book, their diagnosis is bipolar type 2. People think of, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, or people have all these terrible images. I just tell them, just throw all that language out the window. This word bipolar is just a crime against mast cell people. It's a neuroinflammatory syndrome, and these are neuroinflammatory episodes, and we're going to treat them with the same medications that so, you know, quote-unquote treat bipolar disorder, like lamotrigine, like lithium, like Seroquel, and all the mast cell things, all the other mast cell supplements. But that's a big thing for people to wrap their heads around. They don't like it when I start talking about bipolar 2. So that's where the education comes in again. But anyway, so bipolar 2 is one. And panic disorder is another one that I think is really highly related to mast cell activation. And I also find a lot of people with attention deficit disorder symptoms who fit into this profile. You don't think of ADHD as being as episodic. So maybe in that way, it's a little bit of an outlier, but the trouble with memory, the trouble with concentration and focus, I think a lot of people who say, oh, I have ADHD are really saying I have brain fog. Yeah. Yeah. Especially people who grew up as A students and then as adults, they're like, oh, now I have ADHD, but I never did. I think that's largely obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't know that it's as as entirely mast cell driven, but there's definitely something, there's definitely a correlation. Obsessive anxiety is a separate beast that's a neuroinflammatory condition. 
I don't think it should be co-located with panic attacks under this thing called anxiety disorders. I think we should have a category called neuroinflammatory disorders, right? And then there there would be some bipolar type symptoms like hypomania. There would be depression and OCD, suicidal ideation, panic attacks, and ADHD. Those are the things that I think would go under that category. But they didn't ask me. But they need to. That's that, that, such a clear way of saying it. And I think that invalidates so many people, right, who mm-hmm. are having these symptoms and they're labeled and labeled. And the labels, I'm sure you'll agree, are helpful, right? Because as you're approaching a plan, right, it's helpful to know if they're bipolar too, right? That's why you give them a, a, a name, right? Because it's helpful from a treatment perspective. But at the same time, it, that labeling actually kind of works against patients as well, because then they're labeled in the system, and now they have a psychiatric illness. Well, really, what they have is neuroinflammation that exactly. can be treated in a variety of ways. And it's just, oh, no, I see this all the time. Exactly. The labels yeah. blur what, what's really going on, right? And then the patient is having, let's say, debilitating pot symptoms or something. They go to the emergency room, and the doctor looks at the list, lithium, lamictal, Ativan, and then they get blown off beyond the beyond, right? You've heard the stories, I've heard the stories, and they're horrific stories of people being blown off by the medical system because of these labels and these medications, and it's just so... It, we have, there's such a big blind spot. We just have a, blind, a gigantic blind spot in medicine about this. How can we change the system and the information, and, and how will it change patient care? It's a loaded question, but... Oh, I think it couldn't be more significant if suddenly or gradually patients and doctors were more aware of the role of mast cells and inflammation, mast cells in particular and inflammation in general, on mental health and... I think it, it's a massive change that I hope is coming. It would change the lens through which doctors hear patients' symptoms. If there were this web-like model of, you know, that there are mast cells through the body and that when mast cells are activated, all the different organ systems of the body are going to be having the classic but broad list of mast cell activation symptoms, that would change everything, wouldn't it? Yeah. Stigma would be better. Yeah. And the, the stigma is is awful. And I think the stigma comes, at least the stigma in the physicians, who I think are frequently treating people badly, comes from feeling overwhelmed, feeling unable to offer help which is, of course, what people want to do. People want to feel confident and helpful. And so when these constellations of symptoms show up in clinical settings, people feel overwhelmed. They feel incompetent. They don't like that. So then they need somebody to blame. And the person taking lithium is a good candidate. (laughs) So that's why we hope with these types of podcasts that we're getting the message out there well, to, primarily to patients, but I hear more and more that patients are sharing these these podcasts with doctors 
other doctors, I hope that others are listening, starting to understand that, you know, they're not crazy too for not understanding this. This is complex, right? And so kind of turning the tables a little bit and saying, look, we know that this is not easy, but here's some tools so that maybe you can look at the patient with a different lens. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. And especially to look with a different lens at people who have these things, like in psychiatry, we would call this treatment-resistant something-something, like treatment-resistant mood disorder, especially treatment-resistant mood swings or bipolar 2 disorder, treatment-resistant panic disorder, treatment-resistant depression Those are a lot of the people who have had just amazing responses to this method of gradually trying to calm the mast cells down. And I don't often treat the underlying causes of mast cell activation, but I bring in people to collaborate with me to look for mold toxicity or infections, chronic infections. But there's so much need for this in people who have these long-term protracted, what we would call treatment-resistant mental health conditions. There's so much suffering. And I've had the pleasure over the last, I think you said in the intro, 20 years, you might have been reading an old bio. Is it longer than that? It's getting to be 30. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But I've had the pleasure of treating some people for 20, 25, 30 years and really my ability to conceptualize what's going on with them has shifted so dramatically. And some people who, like I'm thinking of a woman in particular who back in her 20s and 30s, you know, was taking every single medication in the book, had ECT for depression, had multiple hospitalizations, I mean, really went through the ringer. And now, I don't think she's taking any psychiatric medications. She's taking... A lot of mass medications. Oh, she's taking okay. a lot of mass cell medications, and she's. Not, I would not say she's out of the woods. I don't want to present this as like, yeah. Here we are, you know, and this is the silver bullet. But we no longer get confused. She would have episodes before, where all of a sudden, out of the blue, so it seemed out of the blue to her. She would go, go to bed for three or four days and and try not to make a suicide attempt. With her, you know, little son at home and terrible, terrible, stressful, you know, for the whole family kind of situation. Well, that doesn't happen anymore at all. And what she's figured out and helped, she helped me learn so much is that these suicidal episodes she was having were 100% mast cell flares. And so if she has her rescue meds ready at the ready, which she does all the time. And as soon as she gets a trigger, which could be like a stressor, of course, an injury, an environmental exposure, a food, all the different things that we know of, infection. And she hops on all those rescue meds and loads up on her Benadryl and her lorazepam and her catodafin and her quercetin and everything. She doesn't go there. And so even though she's not out of the woods, her life is very, very different. Wow. That's a that's an amazing case. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. 
Yeah. Well, and so, I'm just grateful yeah. that you've given us enough information that if there's patients out there or people who know someone out there, some of our earlier episodes about kind of basic control of mast cells, it's enough that they could start trying some of these things while they try to find a physician like you who understands this better. And uh, that's pretty empowering. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So what would your final message be to the listeners? Just that we have so much to learn about this. And when the doctors and the medical system give you an answer that's not working for you in your body, you know, like, of course, go see your people, try it out. If it works, fantastic. That's great. If it doesn't work, then trust your body. Don't trust the authorities, right? Trust your own body that something is going on. Of course, it's intertwined with trauma and psychology, and I could say a few more things about that. Yeah, please. But, but that this is primarily a condition of physiology. This is the physiology of your immune system that's impacting your mood, your fear states, your what we call these defeat behaviors, which is like depression and suicidality, your cognition, your memory, your concentration. This is physiology. This is not whatever happened with your mother, uh, which, you know, I say that. And then, of course, I have to qualify that, right? Because, of yeah. course, I believe, I believe in psychotherapy and PTSD that comes from past traumatic events primes the brain for inflammation. And so to use the ACEs score, the Adverse Childhood Events score, it's a very helpful way to see how primed is your brain for inflammation. And maybe once the, the immune system in the brain and the immune system in the rest of the body is primed for inflammation, then maybe that's a long-term battle to ratchet that down and keep it calm and processing the trauma that laid the groundwork for that physiology is an important part of that. So, you know, the trauma work and the psychotherapy is important. Although I will say doing something like the mindful self-compassion or the, the retraining the brain, those programs, doing those things first before you do trauma work is what I would always recommend because trauma work itself can be a trigger for your mast cells. So if you were going to go jump into EMDR, you're going to jump, go jump to, you know, some other kind of intensive experiencing trauma method. I'm not sure that's not typically what I would recommend. Mm -hmm. Great so, so back to the final message, I would say this is your physiology talking. Right? And unfortunately, conventional medicine isn't quite caught up. I have every belief and every hope and every expectation that conventional medicine will catch up to this. But I would encourage people to just trust your own body. If the things that you're being offered aren't working, then move on and keep moving on. Yeah. It's an excellent message. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sandal. Where can listeners um, find you? You know, do you have a uh, social media website? I have a website. It's a little dated, but it's there. And it's JanetSettle.com. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> 
and I'm not on social media yet. Maybe I will be. Yeah, but you have some really great ideas. These are the things we've been talking about. And just to have a psychiatrist, I talk to my patients about these exact things, but to have a psychiatrist to, to support it, uh, that's just really would be tremendous. So, so think yeah. about it. <laughs> okay. I will. I will. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Dr. Dempsey and Dr. Settle, what beautiful souls you are. What a thrill to have you together talking about this. And I just cannot thank you enough for this information and for all you do to help MCAS patients. This is huge. So, hey, listeners, that's all for now. But we'll be back again next week with a normal episode of the podcast. And we'll be back again next month for another episode of Mast Cell Matters. Until then, thank you for listening. May your mast cells be good to you. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepotscast.com. Thanks for listening.